0: Okay, good morning. It's really nice to be with you all. Uh, I think the last time I was in this pulpit was back on August 7th. And I'm so grateful to God to be here with you and not in a car on the way back to Montana. So praise God for that. It doesn't look like we're going to have to do that uh, between now and the end of the year. And so just keep praying about this horrible injustice it's so ridiculous and as each day goes by it's just crazy and it's just ridiculous um we don't live in the america we have come to take for granted anymore but uh, when truth is uh truth's worth worth fighting for and it's worth drawing a line in the sta- sand and standing your ground for and that's what we're going to do and so god uh has seen us through many miles of this walk across America. We made commitments to him to walk from sea to sea, and that's what we intend to do. And never once has there been a time when we stopped that we didn't go back to the exact same spot and pick up again. And so that is what we intend to do. So just continue to pray for that. We've been so blessed by the outpouring of support, not only from our church family here, but also from strangers. From friends and strangers and brothers and sisters in Christ, not only all over this country, but all over the world. I got such a very kind, very official a letter from a dear brother, a friend of mine from Peru recently. And One of the things about Peruvian culture that we've come to understand in our experiences is that being official with documents and, and different things like that is very important. So if you need to go to a government office or you need to extend a visa or do something uh, official, it's very important that the documents are there, that the documents are official and they look official. That, that's very important. Don't go there with unsigned documents or improperly dated documents. So they like to do things official. And this very kind brother typed up a very official letter that he wanted me to have and wanted me to use to vouch for our character in light of what's going on in Montana. And I was just so blessed that someone that has other issues dealing with, other problems, other trials, tribulations, that in many ways would pale in comparison to ours, would take the time to do that. And it just really made me miss Peru a lot. I hope God will open the door for us to go back, as well as back to Israel and Nepal and some of these other places we've been accustomed to serve the Lord. So please continue to pray for our trial in tribulation that we're facing in Montana, that the wicked, evil men behind this will repent and be made right with God, that the truth will be made manifest, and that believers will be strengthened. And so that's all I'm going to say about that. Thank you for your continued prayers. But let's open up the Scriptures this morning. I want to go to the very last chapter of the Bible. Now we're coming up on 10 years, 10 years since this exegetical study of the book of Revelation began. The very first message when I was asked to bring this study as the Lord would open up doors of opportunity and windows in the times that we were here and not on the mission field was in January of 2013. And today in this book, we're coming back to a place that we haven't been since February 10th of 2013. And that's on the Isle of Patmos with a persecuted preacher who was in exile, probably falsely accused of something he didn't do and was stuck on an island that was a penal colony in exile to whom God... And the Lord Jesus Christ, through His angel, revealed all these things about which we have studied. The last time I was with you, we ended with verse 5 in chapter 22. This brought to an end the third point of the outline John was given. There's a lot of confusion, a lot of bad teaching from the book of Revelation that would be easily fixed and easily solved if we just stick to the outline that Jesus gave to John. Chapter 1, verse 19, John was told to write down three things. The things you have already seen, what he had seen in chapter 1, the glorified Christ, walking amidst the seven golden candlesticks. He was to write down the things which are Chapters 2 and 3, the letters to the seven churches, addressed to the saints in the church age, and then he was to write down the third thing, the things which shall be hereafter. The word hereafter, after what? After the things which are. Those things start in chapter 4, where immediately after the letters to the seven churches, John sees a door opened in heaven. He hears a voice like a trumpet that says, come up here, and he goes up. He's raptured up into the throne room of God, where the church is gathered and says, worthy is the Lamb that has slain, who's worthy to open the scroll, because he has redeemed us out of every tribe, kindred, and nation. And then we proceed through the book, the things which shall be hereafter. And that comes to an end with the new heavens and the new earth, a detailed description of the new Jerusalem, which will be here during the millennial reign of Christ and transcend into the new heavens and the new earth. All of that comes to a close with chapter 22, verse 5. The end of the things which shall be hereafter. And that's where I left you last time. That's where I left you. I left you with so... What do we do for now with all of this detail and information about future things? We know that God gave the people of Israel through Ezekiel the prophet very detailed information about a future millennial temple. A temple that the people living in that day wouldn't see with their eyes in their lifetime. And then God tells Ezekiel why he's to preach these details. That the people might be ashamed of their sin. And I encouraged us to look at these detailed prophecies and these detailed pictures of our future home and may it make us ashamed of our lukewarmness as Christians. Now, in this American church, it's so lukewarm. And I'm as lukewarm as the next man. May they make us ashamed. May they compel us to continue in patient continuance, as Paul says there in Romans chapter 2. And to be, as he says in Galatians, to be not weary and well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. That's where I left you last time. Today we're going to pick up at verse 6. The end of the things which shall be hereafter and what remains is just an epilogue to the book. Just an epilogue. What is an epilogue? It's the closing part of a discourse in which the principal matters are summarized and recapitulated. It's the closing to this book. The book opens with John on the Isle of Patmos, and that's where it closes. John's not up in heaven anymore. He's not seeing a vision of distant things. He's back on the Isle of Patmos, where he was exiled during the reign of the Roman Emperor Domitian toward the end of the first century. This was after the fall and sacking of Jerusalem in A.D. seventy. Something God was very merciful in taking out many of the apostles, Peter and Paul, so they didn't have to see these things. But John lived to see them. And then was later exiled. Now we don't know exactly why he was exiled. There were a lot of Christians persecuted under the reign of Domitian. Many of them were killed and slaughtered. But not John, he was exiled. Even in a time of great persecution, God can watch over his saints and keep them protected and safe to accomplish his specific purposes. And that's exactly what he did with the the apostle John. We know John was falsely accused. We know that later he would, uh, after the death of Domitian, he would be able to uh, return to Ephesus from his exile. So God set him free. And then he lived out his days in Ephesus as an elder, a beloved elder for the churches. He died very old. The only one of Christ's original apostles that weren't, wasn't martyred. And so his writings and his labors closed out the apostolic age and the age of the New Testament. Many Christians like John have been falsely accused... We talk about our situation. Yes, we've been, we're being falsely accused. But our accusations are so, they pale in comparison to even people I've known. I met a brother one time. A father who had spent six months in a jail in Bhutan. He was accused of drowning children in a river. His wife was also arrested in prison for a short time. He spent six months in jail because of a false accusation that was based solely on the fact that some clothes were accidentally left on a riverside after some Christians met there in secret to baptize some new believers. And some clothes were left there. And so enemies of Christ and enemies of the gospel took those clothes and fashioned a story that said these Christians were drowning children. And based on no evidence whatsoever, no dead children, no missing children, they threw him in jail for six months. And he was beaten there. And his wife was arrested. So the things that have fallen out to Eric and I and Carter and Bethany pale in comparison to that. Early Christians were accused of cannibalism, eating each other, simply because they observed the Lord's Supper. Christians today are accused of all sorts of heinous crimes in places like India, and in Muslim countries, and in the Sudan, based on no evidence at all. But God knows the truth. God knows the truth and to be falsely accused as a follower of Christ puts you in good company. I had the great privilege years ago at the same time I met that pastor from Bhutan in one town to share the gospel or to to, to encourage some persecuted believers in another town. And we met under cover of darkness and I was asked to give them some word of encouragement, some word of exhortation to deliver it to these people who had literally suffered for their faith when I didn't really know anything about suffering for my faith, who had been falsely accused like John the Apostle of old, and yet I'm supposed to instruct them? It was a humbling experience, and I was, I was the one taught. But Christians being falsely accused is nothing new, and it's something we should expect. But who is he that accuses God's elect? It's God that judges. And we, as we see in the life of John, though he was accused and exiled, God used him in that exile to give us the closing book to the New Testament, the closing book to the Bible, which brings everything together, the consummation of all things that were delivered by the prophet Moses in the book of Genesis. <coughs> It's an incredible testimony. We were back on the Isle of Patmos. We left it on February 10th, 2013. The last sermon. We've been going over the things which thou hast seen, the things which are the things which shall be hereafter. Now we're back. I'd like to just kind of give you a quick outline of the book. We've gone over this before. It's been so long since we've, Excuse me. Got a frog in my throat. It's been so long since we've been in this book. The first chapter is the things which John has seen, his vision of the glorified Christ. We've got the letters to the seven churches in chapters two and three. We went through each of these in detail. Not only were they actual churches in John's day, but there are types of churches that exist throughout the church age and their prophetic picture of how the church age would unfold from the apostolic age all the way up into the rapture. And as we on this side of history look back at church history, something John and his contemporaries were unable to do, we see that this was a foretelling of the future. And right now, we're in that last church stage. If this isn't Laodicea, the rights of the people, All about us, all about man, man man-centered ministry. If that's not what we have here in America, there's no such thing as Laodicea. We're all Laodicea. You know how you stop being Laodicea? When you open your eyes and realize that what Christ says about us is true. You see, the Laodicean church thought it was wealthy, that it had everything it needed. It didn't need the Lord. It had everything it needed. Thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and you don't know that you're really wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. The error of the Laodicean church is that they couldn't see that they were destitute. Now, if we'll open our eyes and see that we're lukewarm, then we're not laid to see it anymore. And we can buy that gold that perishes not, the white raiment and the eye salve that Christ offers so that we may see. But we traced church history down through the letters of the seven churches, and then you get to chapter 4. Verse 1, the 22, verse 5, we have the things which shall be hereafter. We talked about the rapture of the church prefigured in chapter 4, verse 1. Then we went to heaven's throne room. We talked about what I believe is the most important verse in the Bible Revelation chapter 4, verse 11. We talked about what I believe is the most important chapter in the Bible. Revelation chapter 5, we talked about the title deed of the earth, the earth's kinsman redeemer, the lamb who was slain, worthy to open the scroll. Keep in mind, we as believers have never been promised deliverance in this life from the wrath of wicked men and the devil, but we have been promised deliverance from the wrath of God and the wrath of the lamb. And make no mistake, it's the Lamb who opens the scroll. It's the Lamb who opens that first seal and unleashes Antichrist. It's the judgment of God. We're already under God's judgment in this country. When you have dummies running the government, you're under God's judgment. When you have wicked, crooked, corrupt pig cops running a show in a red Republican county, and can just do whatever they want to do with no accountability, and bully missionaries who were minding their own business, then you live in a country that's already under God's judgment. When wicked, vile people, like the pigs of the Madison County Sheriff's Department, or most of those wicked, evil officials sitting in Congress in Washington... When evil, vile people like that are in power, it's because the wicked are on every side. It's because the society has turned its back on God. It says there in Psalm 12, it tells us something upon which we can cling in hope. The words of the Lord are pure words. As silver trod in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever including the last chapter of the Bible. But the wicked walk on every side, verse 8, when the vilest of men are exalted. Our country's already under judgment. But whatever judgment we're under now pales into comparison to what's coming. And what's coming is unleashed by God. We saw that with the opening of the seals. We get into the tribulation period. That starts with chapter 6 and runs through chapter 18. The Bible also calls this Daniel's 70th week. We examine that in detail, that very important prophecy in Daniel chapter 9. Jeremiah calls it the time of Jacob's trouble. We looked at the seven seal judgments. chapter 6 and 7. The seventh seal is the seven trumpet judgments. We looked at those, chapter 8, verse 2 through 11, verse 19. And then we got into that great parenthesis, chapters 12, 13, and 14, where we're given a description of seven very important characters that have a place in this period of the things which shall be hereafter. Israel and Satan. You know, we talk a lot about how Satan hates the church, but make no mistake, he also hates the nation of Israel and has hated it from the day Joseph had that dream when his brothers bowed down before him. He's hated it from the day Abraham was made a promise. He's hated it from the day Isaac was born. And he's hated it from the Garden of Eden where a Messiah was promised, the seed of the woman who would crush the seed of the serpent. Israel, Satan, the Messiah, Michael, the archangel, the 144,000 Jewish witnesses who will finish the job of the great commission that the church began. Antichrist and the false prophet. Then we looked at the seventh trumpet, chapters 15 and 16, which is the seven vile judgments And then we looked at the destruction of the world system. This world system we're living in is doomed. It's doomed. Not just its religious element, chapter 17, but also its commercial element. Its commercial element that drives all things today. Paul was not understating the truth of the last days when he said the love of money is the root of all evil. It is the root of all evil in these latter times. And it governs everything in this wicked society of ours. Money, money, money. The judicial system is a joke in this country. And it's governed by money. I've seen some things with my own eyes over these past few weeks that I never thought about. The corruption is, is so inbred and the love of money is at the root of it all. But that world system is going to come crashing down. Then we looked at chapter 19, the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The last battle, chapter 19, 17 through 21, also described in Zechariah 14. And then we looked at the destruction of Satan, chapter 20. We spent a little time on verses 6 and 7, because in Revelation... The millennial reign of Christ, which is prophesied in great detail and from of old, throughout the Old Testament, is encapsulated in only two verses here in Revelation. And so we expanded and cross-referenced that with Old Testament teaching on this millennial kingdom, Isaiah 11, Zechariah 14. We looked at the great white throne judgment, the judgment of death and hell. Chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. And then, praise God, the new heavens and the new earth. And the bride, the lamb's wife, the new Jerusalem. Coming down from God out of heaven. Our future home. All of these things. They agree with what's been already revealed in the Old Testament. The book of Revelation, a great counterpart to Daniel. John sees the same things Daniel saw. Daniel's focus was the nation of Israel. Revelation was written for the church. And now the epilogue. Back to John's day. The very last chapter of this Bible. Chapter number 1189. The last chapter. Chapter number... 260 in the Old Testament, so we got the last chapter of Revelation, which is the last chapter of the New Testament, chapter 260, and the last chapter of the Bible, chapter 1189. And if it's the very last, it must be very important, just as the very first is very important. Why then do you never, ever, ever hear a message preached from this chapter? In my entire life, unless I'm forgetting something, unless something has escaped my mind, I have never, ever, ever heard a message preached from Revelation chapter 22. Never. Why is that? There are red letters in this chapter. Jesus is speaking to us in this chapter. It's almost as fascinating to think about The letters to the seven churches. Those are red letters written directly to us. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. And yet it's a rare thing that you ever hear these messages preached from. We're going to see here in this chapter that John is told, don't seal this book up. Daniel was told to seal his book till the time of the end. But John has said, don't seal it up. And yet that's exactly what we do as Christians. Seal it up. You know, it's kind of the same thing with Jesus' teachings, his commandments. You know, you'd think the very last commandment Jesus gave before he leaves this earth to go back to the Father would be worth listening to. In fact, he gives that commandment with a different emphasis each time, at least five times in the New Testament. It's not a good suggestion, it was a great commission. His very last commandment, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And yet it seems to be, of all his commandments, the one we as Christians take the least, with the least amount of seriousness. Now why is that? We, take, we don't take the last chapter of the Bible with much thought. We don't take the last command of Jesus with much thought. Why is that? In this very last chapter of the Bible, we're going to see the Bible's very last exhortation. We're going to see the Bible's, not just revelations, not just the New Testament, but the Bible's very last invitation. We're going to see the Bible's very last warning. We're going to see the Holy Scripture's very last promise. We're going to see the Holy Bible's last prayer. We're going to see the word of God's very last blessing. And we're going to see the Holy Bible's very last amen. I think these things are worth looking at. Just like the first is important, so is the last. And the one who gave this revelation to John says multiple times in this book, I am the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega, the A and the Z, the Aleph, the Tav. And so if the one who gives this book is the first and the last, then we ought to pay attention not just to the first chapter of this Bible, but the last one as well. To best contemplate something that is last, we have to consider what is first. Let's just go back to the very first verse of this book. We're going to get into this last chapter, these last things beginning with a last exhortation. Let's go back to the very first verse of the first chapter of this book. You know, people do err when they refer to this book as revelations. It's not revelations. It's revelation. It's a singular revelation or unveiling. That's where the Greek... But we get the word apocalypse from. means an unveiling. The Greek title of the book in the original language in which it was written is apocalypsis. You'll also see a very similar title for the name of that book in the Spanish Bible. It means an unveiling. This is the unveiling or the revelation of Jesus Christ. Not the revelation of John. That's not correct either. Sometimes the headings in a Bible will say the revelation of St. John. Well, no, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. Which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John. This revelation was given by God to the Son, Jesus Christ. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ to reveal unto who? To his church, his servants, via his messenger, an angelic messenger that we're going to see pop up here at the end, just as he has, has several times. John is not the author of this book. John is what we call an amanuensis. He's the one that just simply writes it down. You know, when we talk about the book of Romans, who wrote Romans? Paul did. But Paul didn't write it down. Tertius wrote it down. That's why if you look at chapter 16, verse 22 of Romans, Tertius says, I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, salute you. He was the amanuensis who wrote for Paul. That's all John is right here. He's just writing down what he's told. Jesus himself affixes his signature and his endorsement. And he speaks of things in verse 1 of chapter 1 which must shortly come to pass. That doesn't necessarily mean soon. What it means is suddenly. When these things happen they will happen suddenly and they will happen quickly and that's exactly how God works if you look throughout history in God's dealings with the nation of Israel if you look in the lives of the saints and the prophets and in nations when God brings salvation he brings it suddenly when it comes it happens shortly quickly suddenly The same when he brings judgment. When he brings judgment, it happens suddenly. Israel was pushed to the brink of the Red Sea. They had nowhere to go. They were hemmed in by the mountains and nowhere to go. And they wailed and moaned and murmured and complained and were rightfully afraid. And God told them, stand still. And watch the salvation of the Lord. It didn't come early. It didn't come late. It came suddenly. And that sea was open. And they walked through as by dry land. And Pharaoh and his armies as saying to do the same were drowned. God's salvation came suddenly. Destruction and judgment had been prophesied against the kingdom of Babylon. Long before Babylon even became a great Gentile kingdom. And yet it looked as if Babylon would never fall. She was a mighty power. The Persians had besieged the city, and yet the walls were strong. The river ran through the middle of the city. They could endure a siege for months and years. No chance the city will fall. And so what did the officials do? They do what our, these wicked people in Washington do. They, they sit around and party on our dime Republicans and Democrats, God only knows what they do behind closed doors. Probably looks a lot like what happened in Daniel chapter 5 and uh, Belshazzar's drunken and feast and orgy. But yeah, they're just having a good old time, a party, while the, wall, while the, while the city's surrounded by an army that can never penetrate its walls. And then that hand comes down. Meeny meeny tekel you, farson. you've been found... Weighed in the balances and you've been found wanted and tonight your kingdom falls. What? And then suddenly God's judgment came. The Medes and the Persians accomplished an incredible military feat that has uh, been near the top throughout all of human history. They rerouted the river Euphrates and came in under the city and slew the Babylonians and the judgment came like that. That's how God works. His salvation and His judgment shortly come to pass. They may seem delayed. They may not seem soon. But when they come, it's sudden. When these things begin that are written here, it'll be sudden. It'll be sudden. Now, back to chapter 22, verse 6. With chapter 1, verse 1 in mind, and he said unto me, <coughs> This is the angel, these sayings, in other words, everything I've, you've just heard, everything going back to chapter 1, verse 1, are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show unto his servants the things which must shortly be done. What was written there in chapter 1, verse 1, is reiterated reiterated here. As As John was told way back then, so it's been done. These sayings are faithful and true. The Lord God sent his angel to show unto his servants. But who is this Lord God? I find it interesting that there is a phrase here in verse 6 that is not in chapter 1, verse 1. Chapter 1, verse 1 refers to Christ's servants, the church, as does this verse. But here we have an added piece of information. The Lord God of the holy prophets. This Lord God who revealed these things to the church in Revelation is the same Lord God that revealed everything in the Old Testament to His holy prophets. Mm -hmm. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. The God of Moses, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Daniel is the God of John. The God of Daniel, the book, is the God of Revelation, the book. It's all one. And these sayings in this book, are faithful and true. They're just as trustworthy as every prophetic writing found in the Old Testament going all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 that God's holy prophet Moses wrote down. These sayings here in Revelation are faithful and true. They're as trustworthy as the book. They're as trustworthy as the witness himself. This phrase, faithful and true, we see several times here in Revelation. In chapter 3, verse 14, this is the message given to the church at Laodicea. These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Jesus Christ, the faithful and true witness. These sayings are as trustworthy as the witness himself. As trustworthy as the name of that witness. When that witness comes out of heaven on that white horse, he has a name called faithful and true. We saw in chapter 19 verse 11. And this book is as trustworthy also as its very name. Words, Chapter 21, verse 5. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. As the Old Testament itself that had already proven itself true by John's day in the, in the detailed fulfillment of prophecy over and over and over and over again, So is this book true. So is it faithful. So will it be fulfilled exactly as it was written. When John wrote this down, there had been countless detailed fulfilled prophecies written of long ago. In fact, what John had just seen, maybe not even 20 years earlier, was fulfilled prophecy, the fall of Jerusalem to the Romans. So it is with this book. John was just writing future history. He wasn't writing down some mystical prophecy that could be fulfilled in many different ways. He was writing down history before it happened. Just like God is able to do. What makes God, God, according to the prophet Isaiah. It's all one. This may be the end of the New Testament, but it's also the end of the Bible. It closes the New Testament this chapter closes this book but it also closes the Bible and we shouldn't forget that. The last chapter of the Bible and all the last things we're going to see in it here it ties itself to the first chapter of the Bible. The first revelation given to God by Moses one of His holy prophets. There's a principle of interpretation when you study the Scriptures. We have a fancy word for that in seminary called hermeneutics. Hermeneutics involves the interpreting or the understanding of the Scriptures. Now, no man can understand the Word of God unless the Holy Spirit of God gives him understanding. If the Holy Spirit of God blinds a man or blinds a nation, he can't understand God's Word, just like Israel. (coughs) God told Isaiah the prophet, Go, who will go for me? Isaiah said, Here I am, send me. God says, Go to this people, so that hearing they won't hear, seeing they won't see, and they won't understand. So unless God's Spirit gives understanding, we can't know the Word of God. But through the Holy Spirit, we can know it. And the plain sense is the common sense. And there are plain sense principles of interpretation that are important when studying God's Word. We call these hermeneutics. For example, here's one of the most basic principles of biblical interpretation. Always interpret difficult passages by the plain passages. Never interpret plain truth with obscure truth. In other words, if there's a very difficult passage of scripture to understand, then seek to understand it by studying the very plain passages of scripture because God does not contradict himself. But if you're looking at something very plain, like all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, then you don't, foist a weird interpretation on it by filtering it through some obscure passage taken out of context. It's a principle of biblical interpretation. There's another one that's important here and I think it's going to be something we ought to, we're almost driven to look at since we're in the last chapter of the Bible. It's called the law of the first mention. The law of the first mention. When we study the scriptures and we see them as a whole, as the complete revelation of God given to man whereby God reveals himself and teaches us what we need to know in this present age we need to remember the law of the first mention what am i talking about this is this is what i'm talking about the first time something whether a word a principle a concept or maybe even a figure of speech or some form of syntax appears in the Scriptures the very first time it appears. How it appears or how it's used is going to set the tone or the association or what we call the connotation, the emotions of a concept or a word throughout the rest of Scriptures. So when a word first appears... How it's used gives us a tone that's going to continue throughout the rest of the book. A tone that we can never divorce or we should never divorce when we see these words or concepts or phrases pop up again. In other words, subsequent appearances are always connected in some fashion back to the first time a word or a concept is used. For example, if we have exhortations in the Scripture, then it would behoove us to consider the very first exhortation in the Scripture. If we have important words in the Scripture and we're trying to understand them as they appear, then it would behoove us to go back and see where they first appear. I want to give you an example. The word love. The word love is throughout the Scriptures, both Old and New Testament. It describes many different. It's described in many different contexts. But does any know anybody know where the very first time the word or the concept love appears? Because it's important. It's in Genesis chapter twenty-two. Yes, it involves Isaac. Genesis chapter twenty-two. And here we learn a very important truth about biblical love that distinguishes it from what we call love today. Genesis chapter 22 verse 2. God is speaking to Abraham and he said, Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah and offer him there for a burnt offering. Upon one of the mountains which I will tell thee of. So the very first mention of the word love in the Bible is tied to what? Sacrifice. Biblical love is sacrificial, my friends. It's not selfish. Everything the world calls love today is selfish. It's about me. But biblical love, going back to its very first mention, Abraham loved Isaac the first time we see that word. And what did God tell him to do? Offer him as a sacrifice. Abraham was willing to do that with one he loved. And God delivered Isaac. It was a prefigure of what God would do through Christ. And so you don't want to divorce the connotation of sacrifice from biblical love. What about the word believe? What is belief? We throw that word around a lot. We see it in Scripture. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. James says thou believest in God, you do well. Even the devils believe and tremble. To understand what true belief is, we might need to look at its first mention. Chapter 15 of Genesis, verse 6. The first time we see the word believe, here in chapter 15, (coughs) God tells Abraham, I'm going to give you a son. This servant in your home will not be your heir. And he brought Abraham out, and he showed him the stars of the heavens... And said, I'm going to give you a seed. Your own child and descendants that are going to be like the stars of heaven. And then we're told in verse 6. And he, Abraham, what? Believed God. Or believed in the Lord. And he counted it to him for righteousness. Abraham believed in the Lord. Well, what did he believe? He knew God was real. God had already appeared to him and told him to get up and go into the land of Canaan. But when it says, Abraham believed in the Lord, what did believe mean? In that context, he trusted what God said. Belief is associated with trusting what God says. Not believing in him as a fact but believing Him in terms of what He says. And so biblical belief is not in God per se. It's believing God. You can't, believe, you can't truly believe in the Lord and not believe what He says. The law of the first mention sheds light on that. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. What does that mean? Believe some facts that Jesus was, a, was born in, of a virgin and He lived and preached in Nazareth and He died on the cross and rose from the dead? Absolutely not. It's believe what Jesus said. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by Me. The Son of Man will be given into the hands of sinners. He will be crucified. And on the third day He will raise again. Believe in it. Believe in that God accepted His sacrifice like God said He would. It's believing God's Word. You can't divorce the Word of God From belief in God. The law. The first mentioned. Sin is an interesting word. When we look at where it first appears in the Bible. Genesis chapter 4. Verse 7. Now why am I going into this? Well we're getting ready to get into the last exhortation of the Bible. The last prayer. The last warning. We're going to go back and look at the first ones that appear in the Bible. Because they set the tone for what we're getting ready to see in the last chapter. Genesis chapter 4 verse 7. God is rebuking Cain. God didn't accept Cain's sacrifice because God required a blood sacrifice as demonstrated by clothing Adam and Eve with coats of skin following their sin in the garden. Cain made a fatal mistake. You don't serve God. Number one, you don't come to God on your own terms. You come to God on His terms. And His terms were blood sacrifice. You don't serve God on your own terms either. Yeah, you know, there are a lot of Christian people that come to God on God's terms and they believe on Christ and they come through the cross and the blood. But yet when it comes to ministry, they're going to serve God on their terms. You don't do that. That's the way of Cain, man-centered ministry. It's what's wrong with the church today. But in God's dealing with Cain, God gives Cain an opportunity to do right. And that's where we see this word sin. Verse 7, if thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted. In other words, do right and quit sulking. Just get up and do what you know you're supposed to do. And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. And unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. In other words, if you do well, you've got nothing to worry about. If you don't, which you haven't done here, then sin lies at the door. What we see here in the first use of the word sin, the word that refers to sin is also the same word that refers to an offering for sin. So the sin and the offering upon which it's placed is one and the same. God literally sent a lamb to Cain, and it was sitting at his door. if he'd do right, the lamb would, do, would wouldn't run away from him it was right there for him to do right, but what did he do? No, he got angry and killed his brother. but here the first word of the use of the, the first use of the word sin, the first mention in the Bible is tied to a sacrifice so sin can be placed or transferred upon a sacrifice. And that's what is meant there in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, when Paul said, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Just an interesting tone set by the first use of it there in chapter 4. Wicked. Word wicked appears in an interesting place for the very first time in Scriptures. Genesis 13, 13. But the men of Sodom were wicked and sinners before the Lord exceedingly. So we have the word wicked appear for the first time in Genesis 13, 13. And we have the word sinner appear for the first time in the Bible in Genesis 13, 13. The law of the first mention, it's worth considering. Wicked, the men of Sodom were wicked. Now we know what the men of Sodom were up to. They weren't guilty of a lack of hospitality. They were sodomites. Wickedness unchecked in a land always leads to sodomy and sexual perversion. Always. We see it in our own country. It was seen in Sodom and Gomorrah. It was seen in... The Roman Empire of old. Wickedness if unchecked in a society as it was here years and years and years ago. Many things that we're seeing today, we were warned about over a hundred years ago in this country. Particularly the destruction of the family. And none of us listened. And now where are we? Sexual perversion and sodomy rules the day. So it was in the beginning. The word sinner, the very... The very first people called sinners in the Bibles were sex perverts. I mean, I'm just saying, that's where sin always goes. And we see it's it gone there in this country. When sodomy becomes accepted in a land, as it has in our nation, as it was in Sodom and Gomorrah, it's never when a nation is prosperous and strong. It's always when it's declining and weak and downspiraling. So sodomy and, and sexual perversion is the symptoms, the ultimate symptoms. You know how when people get certain diseases, they have certain symptoms that start off, but the very worst ones are guaranteed to eventually be there and sometimes right at the very end. That's what these things are. In fact, when Sodom and Gomorrah was wicked and sinful, they weren't prosperous. They were declining as an ancient Near Eastern city-state. In fact, it took Abraham. They were raided by some kings, and Lot was taken captive, and Abraham, with 318 men, had to step in there and rescue the people and the goods of the city of Sodom. So that tells you how weak they were. But wickedness, unchecked, always leads to what we see with Sodom and Gomorrah. The first sinners were sex perverts. So why do we call people good people that the Bible calls sinners? If we love them, we'll tell them to repent of that sin. Turn from that wickedness that brings destruction. So those are some examples of words where they're first mentioned. And the tone... That, these, that is set with the first mentions of these words, and those are things that can help us better understand these words as they appear later in Scripture. Remember, love, biblical love is not selfish. It's sacrificial. Belief is trusting God's Word, not just believing facts about Him. Revelation 22, 6-15, through 15, and I'm just going to kind of end here. These next verses all the way through 15 are what I'm going to call the last exhortation of the Bible. What is an exhortation? It's the act of inciting to that which is good and commendable. It's a form of words intended to encourage or to strengthen. Verses 6 through 15 are the last exhortation given to the saints or the reader of God's word. And these verses, this exhortation is meant to compel us unto good, unto righteousness. If this is the last exhortation of the Bible, it would behoove us to consider the first exhortation of the Bible and apply the law of the first mention. The first exhortation of the Bible can be found in Genesis chapter 1. And I want you just to meditate upon this this week. And we'll continue verse by verse um, through this last exhortation the next time I'm you, Genesis chapter 1, the very first positive command found in the Bible. Not a warning, an exhortation is in Genesis chapter 1. Verses 27 through 30. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. Such basic truth that a generation ago we'd never have dreamed that society would be disputing this basic truth. But so we are. The nation turned its back on God. This is where we are. And God blessed him, blessed them, male and female, and said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every herb-bearing seed, which is upon the face of all the earth, every tree, and the which is the fruit of a tree yielding seed, to you it shall be for meat, and to every beast of the air, and to every fowl of the air, and to everything that creepeth upon the earth, wherein there is life, I have given every green herb for meat, and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. The very first exhortation God gives to our very first father and our very first mother was to be fruitful, to multiply upon the earth, to replenish it. That's an interesting word. I won't get into that with this message. And to exercise dominion over it. This first exhortation is all about what? It's all about the very thing that is most under attack in America today, the family. It's all about the family. Raise up a godly seed and take care of this creation I have made. The very first exhortation in the Bible. It's all about the family. So we're going to let that exhortation set the tone the last exhortation of the Bible and how, how does it set the tone if the very first exhortation of God's word is about the family then it follows that every single exhortation thereafter is important enough that we ought to be teaching it to our families and we ought to be raising up families that will go out and teach others Isn't that what God told Israel in the great Shema? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then God told them to take these things and teach them to your children. What's the greatest revenge against a wicked society that would destroy the family that God made? Husband, wife, and children. Male and female. The greatest revenge against this evil is to raise up a family. To do exactly what God told Adam and Eve to do. And to teach them the things that are written here. You know, these people, these wicked people that would see the family destroyed, I don't believe the time is, I believe the time is short. I believe Christ is coming back for His church soon. But if He tarries these wicked, evil people, that would destroy every foundation of our nation. Remember one thing. They're killing their own children. Remember another thing. They're sterilizing their own children by giving them puberty blockers and telling their sons that they're daughters and daughters that they're sons. It's a matter of time. If the Lord tarries, they will go extinct. And the righteous who raise up godly seed will fill the earth but I don't believe the Lord's going to tarry much longer. He says, Behold, I come quickly. And it's just as sudden, just as sure as it was the day it was given to John. So we're going to get into this last exhortation. The next time I'm with you, we're going to see two blessings in this exhortation. Two specific commands and one very... Important truth that's repeated word for word twice. And it's a truth I'm going to leave you with today. Spoken by Jesus Himself. Behold, I come quickly. Amen. I hope that law of the first mention will give you an interesting thing to think about as you study God's Word. It always is a good exercise to look up the first time a verse or a word is used, or the first time a prophecy appears, the first time a character appears, the first mention of the Messiah, the first mention of anything. If you're studying the scriptures, go back and look at it and see about the tone that's set. That's just a very basic principle of hermeneutics. And so I hope that'll help you today beyond the study of the book of Revelation. Let's uh, uh, close with prayer. Father, we're so grateful for the word of God. Lord, as we think about the Word made flesh this time of year, when the fullness of the time was come, God, you sent forth your Son made of a woman made under the law to redeem them that were under the curse of the law. We're so thankful for that, the very Messiah that was promised back there in the Garden of Eden. And we think about that a lot. But Lord, we're also grateful for the written Word that's been given to us to exhort us, to warn us, to encourage us, to give us hope. In the darkest of times. Lord may we be those that cling to the word. Just like. Old Simeon and Anna were doing. At the time Christ was born. Just as others were doing. They knew the time was close. May we be as them Lord. Father we're just. uh, Thankful for the privilege. To get to the end of this book. And the journey that you've brought us through. To bring us here to this last chapter. And Lord, uh, I just pray that uh, you'll use the words that were spoken today, Lord, for those that heard them here, for those that may be hearing them elsewhere, Lord, that you would use them for your glory. And uh, thank you that we can gather to hear them. Lord, help us to teach your word to our children, to preach your word to the lost, and to never, ever forsake it. Bless the food that's been prepared, Lord. May our fellowship around the table bring you honor and glory. And thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you so much that the babe who was born in a manger, about whom the shepherds gave testimony, was not just a child that was born, but a son that was given. And one day the government will be upon his shoulder. And he shall rule and reign and his saints with him. Hasten that day, O Lord. Maranatha, come quickly. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.